Now we come to the next section. The next section is chapters 3 through 6, and this largely focuses on the first conflict they're going to face. Everything's hunky-dory. We're coming back to the land, singing songs. Everything's awesome. And then they're going to hit the land. They're going to begin to rebuild the, the temple. And then opposition is going to hit them. And the minute we are faced with opposition, then spirits go down the drain. And that's what we're going to see here. So chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month arrived, and the Israelites were living in their towns, the people assembled in Jerusalem... And Jeshua, the son of Jehoiakim, and his priestly colleagues, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his colleagues started to build the altar of God of Israel, so they could offer burnt offerings on it as required by the law of Moses, the man of God. They established the altar on its foundation, even though they were in terror of the local people. And they offered burnt offerings on it to Yahweh, both in the morning and the evening. And they observed the festival of temporary shelters as required and offered the proper number of daily burnt offerings according to the requirement of each day. Afterward, they offered the continual burnt offerings and those for the new months and those for all the holy assemblies of Yahweh and all those that were being voluntarily offered to Yahweh. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to Yahweh. However, Yahweh's temple was not at that time established. Now, there's a lot of important things happening here. First, we see these leaders leading over. We now have Zerubbabel has taken the place of Sheshbazar, and they're leading. So now you have a legitimate descendant of the line of Judah, king, governor, and a legitimate descendant of Aaron, priests, who are presiding over all this thing. So everything suggests you have king and priests back in the land. Although he's not technically king, he's governor because... They're not big enough, and Persia has not allowed them to be a governor yet. So they start to build an altar. This is exactly what the Israelites did when they came out of Egypt. In chapter 14 of the book of Exodus, they come out of Egypt, and they begin to make a 50-day journey to Mount Sinai. When they get to Mount Sinai, 50 days later, they come to the uh, mountain of God, and God literally and verbally speaks the Mosaic law to them. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He speaks it down the mountain in his own voice for all the people to hear. And he gives them the law. That's chapters 19 and 20. And then he gives them a few laws. He gives them instructions on how to build the altar. And that's going to chapters 22 and 23. In chapter 24, they make their covenant with God called the Mosaic Covenant. And they sacrifice an animal, and they all agree to be a part of the Mosaic Covenant under the penalty of death for violating it. That's exactly what we see here. The reason they built the altar before the tabernacle is it would take a long time to build a tabernacle. Without a tabern an altar, you can't have a sacrificial system, and they needed one right off the bat. And so the altar came first before the house of God. And it's the exact same thing here. We see them coming back, and then it knows that there's no giving of the law, because they already had the law, but notice how it says, in accordance with the Mosaic law. That's kind of the replacement of God speaking the law to them. And they built the altar, and then they began to make sacrifices. Leviticus required that a burnt offering for the sins of the people be offered every morning and every evening by the priesthood. And that's exactly what they're doing. 
And then they remain true to all the holy festivals of God and the other sacrificial requirements. Everything is starting off really good here and it's still fitting that Exodus theme that we saw. This is a new Exodus out of exile. Then it says that they observed the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Temporary Shelters. There's lots of different names for it. Now this is fitting because God commanded them to celebrate seven festivals. There were four in the spring and three in the fall that they were celebrating. The four in the spring were foreshadowing the first coming of Jesus Christ, and the three in the fall foreshadows the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Feast of Tabernacles is the last feast of those seven, and we actually just came out of it. It was October 9th was the beginning of it, and it's an eight-day festival. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is basically what would happen is that they would leave their houses and they would live in tents for eight days. And this reminded them that they had no land and no tabernacle and were wandering in the wilderness. And they would build these temporary shelters out of sticks and branches and stuff. And they would live there for eight days, remind themselves that there are no land and not having a tabernacle wandering in the wilderness. On the eighth day, they would go back into their permanent homes and that would remind them that God gave them the tabernacle and that they had a place to encounter God with and it ultimately looked forward to the day that God would not bring them a tabernacle but literally bring the kingdom of God on earth, eliminate all evil, and establish his messianic king. And so the Feast of Tabernacles anticipates the very last two chapters in Revelation where it says that the kingdom of God came to earth and God came to earth and Jesus came to earth and there was no temple because God and the Lamb are our temple. And this is why the, when Jesus was going to the cross because he was going to open a way to the tabernacle with us for dying on the cross, it just happened to be the Feast of Tabernacles when he revealed himself to be the glory of God in the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses showing up because he's saying, I am the tabernacle. Because remember, it said, destroy this temple in three days or rebuild it, and they did not know he was talking about his body. And so that is a foreshadowing of Christ being our tabernacle and then literally the kingdom of God coming to earth and eliminating all evil. And so that festival looks forward to that day. And this is fitting because it just happens by the providence of God, that they're returning back to the land of God on the Feast of Tabernacles, or right before it. And so they begin to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and what better way to look forward to the kingdom of God coming down than the actual event of you returning to the Promised Land and settling there again. This Exodus theme is all happening again as we see them returning to the Promised Land. Everything is going according to plan. They're being super obedient and they're celebrating God's provision and they're celebrating who they are and they're very faithful to what they're required to do. Verse 7. So they provided money for the masons and the carpenters and food and beverages and olive oil for the people of Sidon and Tyre. So they would bring cedar timber from Lebanon and to the seaport of Joppa and according with the edict of King Cyrus of Persia. And the second year after they had come, 
to the temple of God in Jerusalem. In the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Jeshua, the son of Zadok, initiated the work along with the rest of their associates and the priests and the Levites and all those who were coming to Jerusalem from the exile. They appointed the Levites who were at least 20 years old to take charge of the work on Yahweh's temple. Jeshua appointed both his sons and his relatives, Kadamiel and his sons, the sons of Yehuda, to take charge of the workers in the temple of God, along with the sons of Henadad, the sons and the relatives of the Levites. They immediately take the money and they immediately give it to the masons and the carpenters and say, start building the temple. Start building the temple. And this shows you that this is their first priority. So in 536, the temple starts being rebuilt. That very year. Okay, and it hasn't even been half of a year has passed. Only within the first month or so, they're immediately getting this going. Zerubbabel and Joshua allow people to work on the temple project at the age of 20. According to the Mosaic law, you're not allowed to be a priest until you're 25, and you're not allowed to actually handle the tabernacle articles until you're age 30. Yet Zerubbabel and Jeshua allow them to start building the temple at the age of 20. Now, that doesn't seem to be any violation of the law there, because the law never said anything about how old you had to be to build the tabernacle or the temple. It only said you had to be 25 to be a priest in charge of sacrifices and serving the people, and to be 30 to actually touch and handle the article utensils. So there doesn't seem to be descriptions, or there doesn't seem to be a violation of the law here. Verse 10. When the builders establish the Yahweh's temple, the priests ceremonially att- attired, and with their claritans, and the Levites, the sons of Ashpah, with their symbols, stood to praise Yahweh according to the instructions left by King David of Israel. With, an, with antithophanal response, they sang, praising and glorifying Yahweh. For he is good, his loyal love toward Israel is forever. And all the people gave a loud shout as they praised Yahweh when the temple of Yahweh was established. And many of the priests and the Levites and the leaders, older people who were with the Levites and the leaders, or who had seen their own eyes the former temple while it was still established, were weeping loudly. And many of the others raised voices in the joyous shout, and people were unable to tell the difference between the sound of joyous shouting and the sound of people's weeping, for the people were shouting so loudly, and the sound was heard a long way off. They get finished building the foundation, and when they build the foundation, they basically have this great ceremony. They begin to sing praises to God, they begin to glorify Him, in accordance to the, how David had established things and the priestly celebrations. Now what's interesting is you have a lot of emotions here. You have the younger people who are celebrating and laughing and, and praising God, and you have the old people crying and weeping because they're absolutely depressed. So it's like a normal day at my home with my girls. Some of them are laughing and the other ones are crying, and you're just like, what is going on? Why? Because this temple is pathetic compared to what Solomon built. The older people remember, they literally saw the temple of Solomon with their own eyes, and they remember what it looked like. And they've gone, they watched it get destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and they saw it burn to the ground. And they leave, and they come back, and they're super excited that this temple is going to be restored. 
and the foundation shows it's nothing compared to Solomon's temple. The younger people never saw Solomon's temple. They just hold, heard the stories of their grandparents. And so they think this is great and everything is being restored. Now, when you look at the size of this, what's interesting is it doesn't seem to meet the dimensions of Cyrus. Cyrus actually laid out blueprints for the new temple. And what he did was he took Solomon's temple and he basically injected it with steroids and built it even bigger. And the amount of money and the amount of supplies that he gave him and the blueprints seemed to lay out a temple that would have just humiliated Solomon's temple. And yet they did not build what Cyrus had given them the ability to build. They did not use all the resources. Now, what's interesting is, I didn't mention this, but it said, despite the fear of the people in the land. Now, this peoples of the land is going to be used a lot. And the peoples of the land is a very vague phrase. This word peoples of lands can refer to anybody. Sometimes the Israelites and the Judaites were actually called peoples of the lands in the books of the Bible that happened before the exile. Foreigners are called the peoples of the lands. Foreigners who are loyal to God are called peoples of the lands. Foreigners who are idolaters are called peoples of the lands. So you can't really pinpoint who these people are by just that phrase. But obviously they're afraid of these people. These people are opposing them. They'll come in a powerful way in a few moments and they definitely oppose them. So maybe they possibly are the people, they're afraid of the people and they, they're, they're, they're not afraid enough to stop building the temple and to not build the temple, but afraid to build it for what it really truly could be. Or it could be that they're like, wow, there's a lot of extra money here. I would really like some cedar paneling on my houses. Then they're taking some of that and moving their houses. We don't know exactly whether it's selfish motivation or fear motivation, or maybe they thought there's so little of us. You know how like every time Columbus builds a new road, they never anticipate that maybe it should actually be bigger. And Easton's like, hey, let's build all these great things and put one parking lot in Easton. And they're like, oh crap, tons of people are coming. We need more parking space. Like they never seem, like New Albany got it right. They actually built this huge thing, except they're actually not growing, so it just looks vacant all the time. But it's like, if I ever build anything, I'm going to build the biggest, darnest, whitest highway so you never have to screw up all your lives going to work because we have to rewind it. They could be some of that. Like, there's not that many of us, so maybe we don't need a big temple right now. We don't know why they're building such a small thing. It's just, they are. And they're sad. So there's mixed feelings here as this thing is getting erected. This is where the conflict starts coming in. And with the conflict comes the lack of faith. And now now all this excitement, all this energy, all this good intentions is just going to start waning. Because that's how it is as humans. We can be super excited and have these really good intentions. And the minute we face oppositions or difficulties in our faith, that's when we just allow life to take over and get in the way. Chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin learned that the former exiles were building a temple for Yahweh, God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the leaders and said to them, Let us help you build, for like you we seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him from the time of King Eshradon of Assyria, and brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, 
And the rest of the leaders of Israel said to them, You have no right to help us build the temple of God. We will build it by ourselves. For Yahweh God of Israel, just as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the local people began to discourage the people of Judah and to dishearten them from building. They were hiring advisors to oppose them so as to frustrate their plans throughout the time of King Cyrus of Persia until the reign of King Darius of Persia. There's a couple things to realize here. First, we're told that the enemies of Judah and Benjamin learned of the exile. Right off the bat, we're told that these particular peoples of the land are enemies of Judah. Now, this is a little hard to figure out. Like, right now we're being told by the author here that these are enemies. Now, are they truly enemies of God? Or is he just calling them enemies of God because he doesn't like them? They're enemies and they're opposing. All they say is this. These are the, Samar- the people from Samaria. These are the people that he told you about where basically the Assyrians came. They took Israel the north off into exile, which is the territory of Samaria. And the Assyrians took them all away. They brought all the deported people from other parts of the empire into Samaria and they placed them there. Now, according to the book of Kings, people started getting attacked and dying for their idolatry. This is the Holy Land of God. And God did not like that there was idolatry going on here, even though they were not Israelites. So they started dying under the judgments of God. So Assyrians began to freak out because even though they were killing people, it's okay for people to kill because they had a quota, but they wanted a certain amount of people to survive because they need them to work the land so they could tax them. So they didn't like the fact that their taxpayers are dying. So they're like, we need to teach them how to worship God. So they found prophets from Judah who would go to Samaria and teach the pagans how to worship Yahweh. But all they did was mix Yahwehism with their pagan gods. And then eventually over time, some of these Jews begin to intermarry with these people. And so you got this hodgepodge of ethnicity and religious belief system, syncretism going on. So that was back in 722 B.C., It's now 539, and so a lot of years have gone by. And that's a whole lot of time for these people to evolve into something completely different culturally, um, religiously, ethnically, all kinds of stuff. So they come, and they're excited that the people of Judah have returned, and they're building the temple, and they're like, hey, we worship Yahweh too, and we would love to build the temple with you. Please let us join you. And Zerubbabel was like, no. And on this, we don't want you. You're not us. And on the surface, <laughs> that's how I imagined him saying it. So on the surface, it sounds like, wow, that's kind of really unloving. Okay? And if you watch the Bible Project, they're not really friendly to Zerubbabel. They're like, he's a bad person. God said that all the nations would be invited into this new Judah. And they're rejecting these nations. That's contrary to the will of the prophets. That's not biblical. That's not godly for Zerubbabel to say, no, you can't help us. Unfortunately, you've got to understand what's going on. One, they could be thinking Cyrus gave us the edict and the money to rebuild this temple. If we let them help us, this could jeopardize Cyrus's backing and we won't get his backing more. That won't happen. Now, that's a political motivation, and that's not a legitimate motivation or an excuse when you're dealing with the things of God. However, they've learned that what took them into exile? Their idolatry. God is not against foreigners coming into Israel. 
Here's the thing. From the very, very beginning, when God established Abraham, he said, I will make you a great nation, give you land, bless you, so that you can bless the world. And from the very beginning, he invited people in. People from other nations were supposed to come into Israel. And we see this. We, we see Judah, who was marrying a Canaanite woman, who did not convert, convert to God. But then Tamar, that Tamar is another woman that comes in, and Tamar converts to Yahwehism and joins Israel. And we know that she's accepted by God as a Canaanite because she makes it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then another Canaanite by the name of Rahab is going to make it in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then Ruth the Moabitess is going to make it in the genealogy of Christ, showing you that Jesus himself is not even ethnically purish, pure Jew. He is actually part Canaanite. The very people that were supposed to be destroyed for their sins are the very people that accepted Christ and made it into the genealogy of Christ. And then we see this over and over again. Uriah the Hittite is a foreigner, yet he's showing more faith and obedience to God than David himself is in the David and Bathsheba story. And then David's like questioning God and not trusting him. And you've got Arana the Jebusite who's trusting God more when he's offering his land to David to build an altar, which would eventually become the temple location. And we see, and then David's not trusting God, and Ittite the Gittite, who is a foreigner, is like, God's with you, David. And David's like, oh my goodness, I'm so convicted because this foreigner has more faith than I do. And you see this over and over and over again. Elijah does not go to his own people. He goes off to the widow of Zarephath in a foreign country, and she accepts God and comes back, even though all the people of God are rejecting him and worshiping Baal. Over and over again, God has made it clear that foreigners are included in Israel. But there's a tension here. The reason that there's so many passages excluding foreigners from Israel is because foreigners were also idolaters. Today, we don't have this idea that a foreigner is an idolater. Because we can have atheists, we can have people who are lukewarm, all that kind of stuff. And we don't have this idea that the people of God is a certain ethnicity anymore in the church. So this is foreign to us. But in the ancient world, a ethnicity had their own gods, and another ethnicity had their own gods. And these were very distinct from each other. So to bring a foreigner in would pretty much guarantee that you're bringing idolatry in. But yet, if you really look at the law here in Deuteronomy 7 and in a bunch of other places, God makes it very clear that he's not anti-foreigners. He's anti-foreigners who do not convert. And that's the emphasis. They must profess a faith. But because most foreigners don't, then God says don't intermix with them. They're not allowed to mix with the foreigners as a whole because the foreigners will lead them astray. However, if the individual foreigner chooses to leave their people and convert and come into Israel, that's a completely different issue. Yet at the same time, when they allow the massive amount of foreigners to come into the land, they begin to adopt the foreign idolatry practices which then led to their idolatry and violation of the law, which led to their exile. So this is really theological tension going on here, where why did we go to exile to begin with? Because we allowed foreigners into the land, and they brought their gods, and we begin to worship them, we went in exile. We don't want that ever to happen again. And there are some passages that do warn against foreigners from coming into the land. 
And so when you take those theological passages of not mixing with the foreigners, and you take the history of mixing with foreigners and going to idolatry, and then 2 Kings 17 specifically says because they intermix with foreigners and their idols is why God did this to them, you have a very powerful motivation to be very anti-foreigners. Their fear is understandable. However, does that mean that it's okay? And in this case, yes, and here's why. The law also said that non-Jewish people and non-Levitical people are not allowed to build the tabernacle or the temple. It's one thing to allow a foreigner to convert and come into the land and be a part of the life of worship. It's another thing to build the holy place of God. And there were certain restrictions. And there's nothing wrong with that. This is not prejudice. This is not racism in any way. Foreigners are more than welcome in our country as Americans. Yet you have to be an American citizen in order to be a president and lead it. That's very clear. Okay? There's nothing wrong with the um, priests had to be Levites, yet all the other tribes were okay. Okay? There, there, there's certain criteria. When you, when you volunteer for something, you automatically disqualify yourself from other things. Okay? There are things that I'm not allowed to do now that I'm married. There's things that single people are not allowed to do if they're single. Like certain things excluded from other positions or other tasks. And so this isn't prejudiced in any kind of way. This is the way God set it up. So when Zerubbabel says you're not allowed to build the temple, he is totally within the law to do that. In fact, the law required him to say that to them. When he sends them away from building the temple, there's nothing wrong here. There's nothing wrong at all. Now, the minute they're rejected, they immediately begin to attack the Israelites. And then that shows who they really are. If you really truly were worshiping Yahweh exclusively, and you wanted to join in building the temple, and they told you you can't because you're not a Levite, because God's law said you're not allowed to do that, then a true believer would say, okay, right off the bat, you may be disappointed. I can see you being a little bitter. But if you truly are trying to obey God and loving God, then as a whole, your group of people are going to say, I get that and I'm going to respect that because I worship Yahweh. But the fact that they immediately begin to attack the Israelites and make life difficult for them, and they intentionally try to stop the building of God's temple, means that they're opposing God. And that reveals them for who they truly are, which shows you that when Zerubbabel called them the enemies of God, they truly are the enemies of God. And so in the beginning, it sounds very discriminatory. In the beginning, it sounds very anti these, the, the prophet's vision. But when they begin to attack them, that shows that Zerubbabel's intuition was correct. His intuition was correct. However, there is a problem here. The prophets did envision the nations coming into Israel. And there was some kind of a desire to begin with, to be a part of things. And Zerubbabel's answer is a flat-out no on everything. There doesn't seem to be any kind of middle ground, like, no, you can't help build the temple because you're not a Levite. In fact, I'm not even building the temple because I'm not a Levite. Yet, if you truly worship God and you want to be part of this, you're welcomed into our communities and our festivals, and we would love to have you to a certain extent. 
or there's no like evaluation of like, do you worship Yahweh alone? Or do you have other gods? Notice that they keep calling them peoples of the lands, but nowhere does the text anywhere call them pagans or idolater worshipers. We're never get that distinction. And the Bible is always really quick to say they're idolaters. And the fact that the narrator doesn't quickly point out that they're idolaters, never in the story or scene ever says that they're idolaters, says that maybe Zerubbabel's no was too black and white, too flat out. In some cases, he's justified in saying no, but maybe it was too firm and too hardcore and too absolute across the board. And we're going to see a lot of that. We're going to see Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah being incredible men of God. But they have a very black and white view of things. A very black and white view of things. It's going to get them in trouble in a lot of ways. And so there doesn't seem to be any gray area or any will work with you or any let's talk about God or no, you can't be a part of our festivals right off the bat, but we would love you to join this kind of thing here. Even our churches do this. Like, okay, welcome to our church. Come in. We would love to have you. If you're not a member and you don't profess the faith in God, then we would ask you to abstain from the Lord's Supper. You don't have any voting rights. We're not going to allow you to lead a ministry over our children or like some homeless outreach, but we would love for you to be here. And if over time we see that you truly love God, that you've accepted Christ, and you want to be a part of the life of community, and you're willing to make sacrifices to be a part of it, and you're willing to publicly profess your faith in God and commit yourself, and we see your character over time, then we'll make you leaders. And even our churches today do not flat out well. Some churches do. But most churches do not just do this flat out. No, don't even come in our doors. And that's what we see with Zerubbabel. His no is good. It's just too harsh and too absolute and too across the board. And there there doesn't seem to be any discussion about why he's saying no. Is there any idolatry in their life? What kind of commitment do they have? What kind of commitment they don't have? There's something there. And yet it's not explored. And that's very dangerous when somebody has... listen. It doesn't care. I don't care if they're a nymphomaniac, alcoholic, swearing, involved in... If they have a desire for God and there's an openness, we should pursue that. And we should grab a hold of that and nurture it. No, they're not going to lead my kids in the church. But yes, I need to be there. Zerubbabel doesn't do that. And this is the first beginnings of things because we're seeing too, too much of a harshness here in his answer. Verses 6 through 24 is one giant parenthetical statement. Just put a giant parenthesis before verse 6 and put the closing parenthesis at the end of verse 24. And what we're going to get is a huge summary of opposition. Now the first opposition that we've had is historically in the present of the people opposing the temple. But what the narrator is going to do is he's going to begin to move into the future and say, oh yeah, and during the reign of this king, there was more opposition to this, and there was more opposition to here. And he's going to show you that these people of the land have a long, they're going to have a long history of opposing God. He's justifying why they're not allowed to be a part of this. So they're going to have a long history. The very end of verse 5 says that they oppose them from Cyrus to Darius. That's four emperors. That's about four emperors. So that's a long opposition. So Art Xerxes who's a later emperor, 
At the beginning of the reign of Arshasuerus, they filed an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And during the reign of Artaxerxes, Bilshalom and Miradath, Tabil and the rest of their colleagues wrote to King Artaxerxes of Persia. This letter was first written Aramaic, but then translated. Rehem, the commander of Shemeshai, the scribe, wrote a letter concerning Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. From Rehem, the commander, Shemeshi, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and the rulers and the officials and the secretaries and the Erkerites and the Babylonians and the people of Susa, that is the Elamites, um, the rest of the nations whom the great noble Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and other places in the trans-Euphrates, this is a copy of the letter they sent to him. That's a long introduction. To King Xerxes, from your servant and trans-Euphrates. Now, let the king be aware that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding this rebellious and odious city. They're putting the context that this rebuilding is automatically rebelling against your authority. If you allow this to happen, you're allowing rebellion against your kingship, Xerxes. They are completing its walls and repairing its foundations. Now this is under Nehemiah. And this is the rebuilding of the wall. So this is, this is more than 80 years later. Its foundations. Let the king also be aware that if this city is built and its walls are completed, no more tax customs or toll will be paid and the royalty treasury will suffer loss. Now where they got that, I don't know. Like this temple equals no more taxes to you. They're making this up. In light of the royal treasury will suffer loss. In light of the fact that we are loyal to the king, and since it does not seem appropriate to us that the king should sustain damage, we are sending the king this information so that he may initiate a search of the records of his predecessors and discover in those records that this city is rebellious and injurious to both kings and provinces producing internal revolts from long ago. It is for this very reason that this city was destroyed. We therefore are informing the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, you will not retain control of this portion of the trans-Euphrates. This is incredibly politically savvy, this letter. What they're appealing to is the two greatest fears that rulers have. Rebellion against their authority and not paying taxes. And then there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence. Yes, the people were rebellious, but they were rebellious towards their own God, Yahweh. There is no evidence of them ever rebelling against Assyria. They briefly rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, but he put that down very quickly. And everything after that, Nebuchadnezzar even reported many times that Babylon or Israel was in compliance with him. And there's no evidence of rebellion under Cyrus II. In fact, he let them return. And so this is all made up. There's nothing about them not paying taxes. They have no history of ever not paying taxes. And there's no history after this point of them ever not paying taxes. So basically they're doing is they're making up lies to stoke the two greatest fears that our Xerxes would have. Here's the other thing. There were some major rebellions that had just been put down by our Xerxes and other parts of the empire. And what happened is they had come out of a whole series of rebellions 
where even the Persians themselves were rebelling against the king, and this king got sacked, and another king got power, and it went. So coming out of that too, he's probably got PTSD from rebellions, and they know that, and so they're putting that up there too, and so this is going to inspire the king to have a knee-jerk reaction on things. So verse 17, the king sent the following response to Raham the commander, Shishamai the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and other parts of the trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent to us has been translated and read in my presence. So I gave orders, and it was determined this city from long ago has been engaging in insurrection against kings. It has continually engaged in rebellion and revolt. Powerful kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled throughout the entire Transjordan, trans-Euphrates, and who were in the benefactories of the tribute custom and toll. Now give orders that these men cease their work and that this city not be rebuilt until such a time as I instruct. Exercise appropriate caution so that, these, so that there is no negligence in this matter. Why should danger increase to the point that kings sustain damage? We have no idea where Artaxerxes found this information that they're rebellious. We have no idea where he got this in any kind of a way. But he actually supports these people in stopping the building of the city walls. Now remember, this is 80 years later that this happens. And they try to build the walls. Now what's interesting is that this won't last very long. Because only a couple years later, Nehemiah is going to feel convicted that he should go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the very Xerxes I who stopped the rebuilding of the walls will be the very one who will say, go Nehemiah and I'll write a blank check for you. And I'll make it happen. So the only thing, two, probably two things are happening in tandem. And this is usually how God works. There's historical, cultural circumstantial things that motivate people, but then there's also the Spirit of God leading them, and the two things become a motivation. New rebellions are going to rise up in Egypt and start threatening this region. And probably circumstantially, Xerxes is probably going to change his mind and saying, you know what? Having a strong pro-Judean force down there is good for anti-rebellion. And Nehemiah is one of my senior advisors in my palace, so I can trust him to promote my interests. So it might be good to have him down there doing the rebuilding of the walls to support my powerful interests. At the same time, Nehemiah says that Yahweh moved Artaxerxes to support him. And so two of these things together is going to bring this opposition. That's the book of Nehemiah. That's interested in what Nehemiah will do. Right now, the narrator is just recording opposition. Just recording opposition. So then as soon as the copy of the letter from the king Artaxerxes was read in the presence of Rahem, Sheshemai the scribe and their colleagues, they proceeded promptly to the Jews in Jerusalem and stopped them with a threat of armed forces. There's got, well, had to be some great arrogance there as they came in. So the work on the temple of God and Jerusalem came to a halt. It remained halted into the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. They stopped. This is a lack of faith in God. One simple letter should not have made them stop building God's house. If they truly had faith in God, God said, build my temple. God said, build my city. 
And one opposition should have never made them stop building the temple. One letter should have never made them stop building the city. Yes, there's a certain sense that they should be obedient to their government leaders, but this is one case where God said build. And in that sense, God overrides this command. This is the end of the parenthetical statement. The end of the parenthetical statement showing you that this opposition is lasting for a very long time. From basically 536 to 446. That's a long time of them opposing them. 